I have an old acquaintance that I'm, I'm going to call him Pete, okay? We'll call him Pete today. And by almost everyone's estimate, Pete is one of the finest guitar players just about anywhere. And for a good while, Pete was the guitarist in the band that backed up a young rock and roll star, a young man that we'll call Michael, who later left rock and roll, and he became a pastor. So Michael's a pastor, and he was concerned about this guitar player, Pete, because in all the years he'd known him, Pete had never shown any interest at all in anything to do with Jesus. But this young pastor, Michael, thought if he could just get Pete to play in his church's worship band, maybe over time something would change for Pete and he might be interested in Jesus. And so Pastor Michael asked Pete if he'd be willing to play at his church some weekend. And surprisingly, Pete said, sure. So Michael sent Pete the song charts for the coming weekend service. And one of the songs happened to be a moderned up version of the old hymn, There is a Fountain. Well, it wasn't even an hour before Pete had called Michael and said, there is no chance that I'm gonna play that song or even attend a church that would sing a song with such offensive lyrics about blood. Now, you may know that old hymn's first verse. It goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now, I can see why Pete, someone with absolutely no exposure at all to Christian things, would have such a response to that song. A fountain filled with blood? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, whoever Emmanuel is, and sinners plunged beneath that flood? Really? Now, for those of us who are schooled in the things of theology and images of Christianity, we know what William Cooper was talking about back in 1792 when he wrote those lyrics. But let's just be honest. They're still pretty unnerving. And so can, the, so can be the fact that there is so much blood in the Bible. It's no exaggeration to say that blood can be found from the front of the Bible to the back of the Bible. Blood is one of those themes that runs throughout the entire, as we're calling them in this series, the library of scrolls that are now the Bible. It's one of those themes that runs from front to back. And I must say that when we encounter blood in the Bible, if we do so, holding on to our modern sensibilities related to blood, whatever our sensibilities may be, we will miss what the ancient authors of the Bible were trying to tell us. 
And so, my hope today is that we can discover together not only why blood plays such a prominent role in the Bible, but also why when we run into this theme of blood in the Bible, it should be something that ultimately leads us to hope and thanksgiving. But I'm gonna need to pray about this one before we start it, okay? So let's all just pray for a second, let's pray. Father, uh, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful that it can, contains the truth about you. Father, we ask that you will um, speak through me, that what I say will honor you and will bring honor to your son, that this will be a time where our hearts are moved by your deep love for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say one thing. Oh, by the way, I, I want to welcome everybody that's watching online. We're glad you're with us. I've been running into more and more people lately. I ran into someone this week who said they hadn't been here since before COVID, but they've watched every week. They knew way more about me than I thought they would, but that's because, and I want to say one other thing. This is for the band. My grandson, little grandson is, was here this morning in first hour. And he knew there was food back there, and he heard, overheard someone in the band say, let's just count how many times Tim says blood through the next service, so I don't know where we are, but guys have at it, okay? At least you're paying attention. I just, that's just Pastor Tim being Pastor Tim, okay? Okay, the first place that we find blood playing a role in the Bible is in Genesis 4. And could you all look that up for me, uh, with me? It's Genesis 4, it's on page five in the House Bible. Now, I want to say before we jump into this passage, there's absolutely nothing in common between the way ancient people thought about our bodies and how they worked and how we think about how our bodies work. Ancients believed that our bodies contained four fluids. We, we've got phlegm in us, we've got yellow bile, We've got black bile and we've got blood. And those four fluids need to be in balance for a person to stay healthy. And actually that concept of the four fluids being in balance didn't go away. It's not just the ancients. You know that George Washington died early because his fluids were out of balance and they bled him to death trying to get his fluids in balance. So it's like up until the beginning of the 19th century, people thought this was the truth about us. The ancients also didn't have any idea about how our internal organs worked. They thought that all that weird stuff that they found inside of us and inside of animals were simply pathways for these four fluids to move around in our bodies. And blood was particularly important because, as the ancients believed, our blood, and this is really the important point here, and, and not only our blood, but the blood of all creatures that had blood, our blood carried in it some sort of mystical spiritual force that gives us life. In fact, in the ancient mind, there was almost no difference between notions of blood and life. Now think about that a minute. Our blood and our life were the same in the way they thought about it. 
And they also believed that certain parts of our bodies were completely separate creatures, if you will, that lived inside of us. Our hearts, our intestines, particularly women's uteruses, and our blood, while they could all be found inside of us, they actually lived separately from us and often had minds of their own. Now, I know this all sounds crazy, but it was the science of the ancient Western world, and we need to keep these things in mind when we read this first passage that deals with blood in Genesis 4. In this chapter, we learn about two brothers, Cain and Abel. They are Adam and Eve's sons, and these two brothers had each brought an offering to God. And there was something about Abel's attitude when he brought his gift to God that God approved of. But there was something about Cain's attitude when he brought his gift to God that God disapproved of. And rather than Cain changing his attitude, he killed his brother in jealousy. And then we read this in verse 9 of chapter 4. This is God confronting, Abraham, or confronting Cain. And he says, afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. Now that sounds like God is just getting metaphorical here because we don't think about blood as literally having a voice that would cry out. But to the first readers of this story, to the ancient world, it would have made perfect sense for God to say that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. Abel's life was in his blood. The force within Abel that gave Abel dignity and made Abel a vibrant living man, had been drained out of his body and onto the ground due to a jealous rage. It would have made perfect sense to the ancient readers that Abel's blood, as a separate aspect of Abel's being, would cry out for justice in a way that God could hear it. It just makes sense to them. And this notion of our blood being the fluid that carries the force that gives us life and that blood is deserving of great honor and dignity is carried on right through the rest of the Bible. Possibly the most overt example of this is found in Leviticus 17. You can turn to that with me as well. It's on page 100 in the House Bible. Leviticus 17 is a part of the Bible where God is giving the Jewish people the law. He's giving them rules for living that will separate his people in a really good way from the rest of the nations and the peoples of the world. And we read in this passage, as we read this passage, it's important to keep in mind this. Ancient people were primarily vegetarians. They did not eat meat very often because animals were far too valuable. 
animals gave them, animals like goats and sheep and cattle and all that gave them milk. Sheep gave them wool and goats gave them their wool, the fur on their bodies to make clothing out of that. And they were just, in fact, if you remember last week, Barry said straight up that these pasture animals were considered a person's wealth. That's, you, you knew somebody was rich if he had a lot of these. They just didn't kill them very often to eat them. But when a special time came along, like in a moment of great celebration or an important sacred time, when those kind of moments came along and it was necessary to take the life of an animal and then eat it, God's law said it was never to be done cavalierly. The animal was giving its life, in other words, shedding its blood so that others could live. And when this happened, you needed to treat its life, its blood, with great dignity. In fact, chapter 17 begins by saying, there's a whole section that we're not gonna read, but it starts out by saying that, that when you kill a bull or a lamb or a goat, there is only one place that you can kill it. It's only one. And that place is at the entrance to the tabernacle. God was saying, this is a sacred act. And you are not to do it just any old place. You are only to take the life of an animal so that you can live at the most sacred of places, the entrance of the tabernacle, and you need to do it with the help of a priest. Then we read this in verse eight. Give them this command as well. If any native Israelite or foreigner living among you offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice, in other words, kills an animal, but does not bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle to offer it to the Lord, that person will be cut off from the community. And you can see how serious God is here about how, what you're supposed to do when you take the life of an animal. He says, if any, any native Israelite or foreigner living among you eats or drinks blood in any form, I will turn against that person and cut him off from the community of your people for the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. That is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood, neither you nor the foreigners living among you. And if any native Israelite or foreigner living among you goes hunting, and kills an animal or a bird that is approved for eating, he must drain its blood and cover it with earth. In other words, you have to give the blood a proper burial. The life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood for the life of any creature is in its blood. So whoever consumes blood will be cut off from the community. Okay, can you tell God is serious about this? You know, in the Bible, if you ever read something that's a somewhat the same, but really close to the same twice, you need to pay attention. If you read it more than twice, you really need to pay attention. How many times did God say this is important? Just in this passage, he said, pay attention. In fact, the word that he uses to say life here is nefesh in the Hebrew. And it's a, it's a he says, the nefesh of every creature is in its blood. 
Nefesh is a huge Hebrew word, huge. It can be used in a multitude of ways. Um, it can be used to speak of our souls. It can speak of the living aspect of our being. It can be used to talk about the dignity or the unique qualities that an individual has. Um, it can be used to speak of our desires or our appetites or our emotions, even our passions. And there's a big word that encompasses just about everything that makes us alive and vibrant. And God tells the Israelites that the nefesh of every creature is in their blood. So you don't eat it and you certainly don't ever drink it. No, he says, you are to show the blood of an animal great honor when you take its life so that you can live. And just think, if this is how they were to dignify the blood of an animal, then think how important it is to dignify the blood, the life force of a man or a woman. And this is exactly where the theme, this theme of blood is taking us, to the dignity that we are to give to the life, to the blood, of someone, and this is important, who gives their life so we can live. You see that? Now, having read the laws in Leviticus, we can see why just about everyone had such a disgusted response to Jesus when he said in John 6 that unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we cannot enter into eternal life. Now, we believe that Jesus was talking metaphorically about us ta taking his life into ours when we drink his blood. You know, this is a metaphor, it's just an idea. It wasn't serious. But to the first people hearing Jesus say this, Jewish people who'd spent their entire life doing their very best to never find one drop of blood in any meat they ever ate, Jesus saying that we needed to drink his blood to live with God was a deal breaker. And while it may have been confusing for them to hear what Jesus said in a moment, one thing was certain, Jesus saying that we needed to drink his blood was clearly disgusting and heretical and completely ridiculous to the first people that heard him say it. And I have to be honest, some of that initial confusion surrounding exactly what Jesus meant, it still exists for us today, some of it. Um, as some of you may know, there are still whole branches and traditions of Christianity uh, that believe that we do literally drink the blood of Jesus in communion. That they believe, these are Christians who believe that something mystical happens to the wine in communion when it is blessed by an officiant and it literally becomes Jesus' blood. And while we don't have time to flesh all of that out today, the reasoning behind this understanding goes back to the idea that Jesus' life force, his perfect being, is contained in his blood. And when we take communion, we are taking in Jesus's life. And with his life comes the power to live as only he lived. 
And there's one more aspect of blood related to Jesus that I have to bring up. We are, as we're all aware, the hymn that I mentioned at the beginning says that Jesus shed his blood for us. And that, and that he did it for a number of reasons, not the least of which was to be the ultimate sacrifice that paid the price for mankind's sin. We know from early church history and from the writings of the first followers of Jesus, the fact that Jesus allowed himself to bleed to death and the fact that Jesus was willing to give up his life for those he loved was they were in essence considered by the early church the same thing. I wanna repeat that again. Jesus giving his life up for us and Jesus shedding his blood for us were thought to be exactly the same thing. Now you can find tons of statements in the New Testament letters, the letters of Paul and John and Peter, and in particular, the writer of the book of Hebrews, they speak to this everywhere. And what it seems is that once the early followers of Jesus started thinking about what Jesus' death and resurrection meant for the whole world, they couldn't help but talk about how we've been given freedom and grace and power and a life of unfettered relationship with God through Jesus shedding his blood, or another way to say it, laying down his life for us. It was the same thing. He gave up his life, he shed his blood. And as I've thought about this, I can't help but believe, and this is just Tim Ayers, okay? Just Tim Ayers. But I can't help but believe when Jesus silently and willingly died on the cross, and when his life flowed out of his body and onto the ground, just like Abel's, Jesus' blood in some mystical way also cried out. But unlike Abel's blood, Jesus' blood did not cry out for justice. Jesus' blood cried out, I have finally brought justice to everyone. The need for more shedding of blood is finished. It is finished. There's so much more we could talk about related to the theme of blood. We could talk about how it plays into the sacrificial system and the meaning of atonement through the shedding of an animal's blood. We could talk about how on, in one major moment in the book of Exodus, God uses blood as a punishment on the Egyptians and he turns the river Nile and all water in every well and bowl and cup in any house into blood as a punishment on them. And there's a place where we could, we could talk about how blood is used even in the Passover moment as a protective um, element in that whole uh, exodus of the Jews from Egypt, or we could talk about how life being in our blood makes what happened to Jesus when he gave up his life on the cross something other than what we often imagine. I'm, I'm gonna go off script here and just say this to you. We talk about Jesus dying on a cross. He did. But crucifixion did not kill Jesus. 
Crucifixion was a bloodless drowning in your own bodily fluids. But Jesus gave his life for us, so he had to bleed to death. He bled to death because of the beatings and the whippings and the floggings that he received before they nailed him to the cross. His blood had to come out of him in a dignified way, and death on a cross is undignified unless you bleed to death. And the Romans were not into people having dignified deaths, but Jesus died in a dignified way, giving his life for us. I just want to emphasize this. Blood enters the Bible as something that signifies dignity. And that dignity ratchets up as we go through the scripture, more and more. And this theme culminates when we come to the part of the Bible that shows us Jesus living a life, a life that is contained in his blood that is literally all that true life can be. And what we come to find is that Jesus not only wants us to share in that life, but he was willing to sacrifice his life. He was willing to shed his blood so that we can know the freedom and the grace and the power of an unfettered relationship with his heavenly Father. And so yes, the Bible is full of blood. Blood that makes us wonder about things and can seem distant from the loving God that we've come to know. But here's my final point. Every time you run into blood in the Bible, just remember that it is there because it is taking us someplace. Someplace specific. But not to William Cooper's fountain filled with blood. I promise you, that somewhere in whatever you are reading in the Bible related to blood, the mention of blood is in some way pointing us specifically to life with all of its possibilities. Again, the possibilities of freedom and grace and justice and power that come from an unfettered relationship with God. Never forget that the blood theme will continue on until it concludes in one final giving of one life, one shedding of blood for the life of everyone. I do not think it's a coincidence that once we read that Jesus has risen from the dead, Every mention of shedding of blood in the scripture after that is in the past tense. All of the need for a continuation of the theme of blood ends when Jesus rises from the dead and offers us his life. New life in him. So this theme, while it can seem uncomfortable, is one that should, when we encounter it, give us hope and a deep sense of thanksgiving, hope because we know it is leading us somewhere unimaginable, and thanksgiving because it's not only heading to the cross, but also to the empty tomb. And that gives us the promise of new life. And in that ultimate new life, here's another two mayors. I'm just gonna go there again, okay? I am certain 
that when we are resurrected with our Savior into the new life that we will have for eternity, that in our new bodies will be new blood, new blood that mystically carries all that can be found in the blood of Jesus. Life that is full of freedom and power and dignity and grace and the joy that comes from having a face-to-face, uninhibited relationship with our Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Because He is the one who gave His life. He is the one who shed His blood. And He did it because He loves you. And He wants to give you new, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you so much for his willingness to give his life for us. Thank you that we can place our faith in your son and be given new life. I don't even know what more to say, Father, than thank you. Thank you for both your deep love for us and the hope that we have for eternity through your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Your homework is to read Hebrews 9, 1 to 15. Hebrews 9, 1 to 15. Now, I've got a suggestion about it. We use the NLT version here. It's a great version. And if that's what Bible you have, great. Or whatever version you have is fine. But I would ask that you also go online and look up the message and read the passage in the message as well. And I think... As you look at it, it will come alive to you as you think about the things that we've talked about today. As we close, I wanna read to you one scripture that I want, that I think is really important and that you focus on as you do your homework over the next week. So just listen to this scripture as I read it. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Perfect sacrifice for our sins. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us/hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.